Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hello, thank you for joining me this Thursday, March 9th. A lot to get to. President Biden is talking about his economic plans. He is talking in Philadelphia right now. Uh, supposedly his budget is going to be distributed. It is finalized. It is ready to go. And that is, um, supposed to happen this evening. But, uh, the White House did release sort of an early look at what the president is highlighting and, um, honestly, um, most of what is in the budget is stuff that he is already doing or has already done, which is good news. That's good news. This isn't just, um, oh, let's see. I hope we can get this accomplished. It's here's what we've done and here's how we can do more of that. He wants to cut over the next decade. He wants to cut three trillion dollars out of the budget to help reduce the deficit. Um, And it looks like he has a plan for continuing the programs that he is most proud of, plans uh, for families, cutting taxes for families with kids, lowering health care costs and prescription drug costs and housing costs and college costs and energy costs. Um, the White House put out a statement summarizing the high points of the budget. And it is, um, it is, it is compared to the usual releases they put out. This one is many pages long. But as I've been over it two or three times already, you know, seeing if there's something in here I, I haven't really caught before or some, uh, some big proposal. Probably, I think, the biggest news in what has been released by the White House is that, yes, the things that he has accomplished, he wants to do more of, but he still wants to accomplish a couple more things that he has already talked to us about, such as a minimum tax on billionaires. Um, That's something that he's been talking about. It hasn't gotten... It hasn't gotten going just yet, but he wants to do a tax on billionaires. He wants to make sure that corporations pay a fair amount of tax. These are things that he's been talking about for a while now, but hasn't been able to um, get off the ground quite the way he would like them to be. A little bit later today, we're going to be uh, talking to our good friend Isaac Wright, who is an expert in rural Voting, And one of the things that I want to ask Isaac about, sometimes it seems to me that rural voters, which I'm going to generalize here, have a tendency to be more red, more MAGA than Democratic. It seems like they don't get the message that Joe Biden is, is he's been an amazing president in his first two years. He has accomplished so much, and I don't think the average voter really appreciates that, and I'm not sure why, and maybe Isaac will have some insight into that. Um, Also, uh, you know, recently it was big news that Kevin McCarthy 
shared all of the video, hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of video from January 6th with Tucker Carlson. Just Tucker Carlson, nobody else. And Tucker Carlson went through that video and pulled out all the scenes where it was just before before all hell broke loose. The scenes where people were just walking around and talking to each other. And he edited all that together. And he went on his show and he was like, you know, I don't know what these people are talking about. January 6th insurrection. Look at this video. I got this from Kevin McCarthy. It's just a bunch of people walking around, talking, having a good time. Just tourists. Clearly. Clearly leaving out all the violence. Clearly leaving out the fact that um, some of the people who got into the Capitol building that day spread feces on the wall. That's not counting the people who wanted to set up that um, hangman's noose and hang Mike Pence. So the uh, chief of the Capitol Police put out a lengthy statement saying that what Tucker Carlson was doing was a lie, that he was... Sort of spitting in the face of every officer who was on duty that day. Editing together the bits and pieces of nonviolent footage and then trying to sell that as as if that were what the bulk of that day was all about. Liar, liar, pence on fire. Well, we've learned from Kevin McCarthy and others that um, generally when Fox News tells lies, not only they don't, oh my God, of course they don't refute them. They don't say that's a lie. They're just very, very quiet. They say nothing at all. They don't want to go on record as saying what Fox Fox Cable is saying is true because they know it's a lie, but they don't want to take the chance of alienating any of the viewers, so they say nothing. And I am not a big fan of Mitch McConnell, but after Tucker Carlson showed that video and claimed that January 6th was just a peaceful love fest with a few tourists who were curious about the Capitol building, Mitch McConnell came out in front of the cameras in the hallway outside Senate chambers and he waved the press release from the uh, head of the police, basically saying Tucker Carlson is a lying liar who lies. And Mitch McConnell went on the record, you know, you know, would have been maybe a little more satisfying if he'd have been a little angrier about it, but He's the only Republican who seemed to have the stones to say anything. I want to share a little bit of that edited audio with you. Listen to this. With regard to the uh, presentation on Fox News last night, I want to associate myself entirely with the opinion of the chief of the Capitol Police about what happened on January 6th. It was a mistake, in my view, for Fox News to 
depict this in a way that's completely at variance with what our chief law enforcement official here at Capitol thinks. <laughs> completely at variance. Yeah, it's okay, Mitch. You can just say um, they went on there and they told a bunch of lies. It's completely at variance with what the chief of the Capitol Police says, and frankly, I'm putting my money on him. But kudos to Mr. McConnell for saying anything. He didn't have to. Uh, as you heard at the top of the hour, he is in the hospital. The last word I got was that I don't believe he's been released. He has a possible concussion. He was having dinner last night at a Washington, D.C. hotel, and apparently he fell. Uh, he is, I think, is he 81? He's um, He's not the sort of age where... You want to be falling down. So he is currently being evaluated there. Uh, if anything, uh, if we get any updates on his condition, I'll share them with you throughout the day. Okay. couple other uh, local notes. You know, we've talked, especially since we were talking to nine different candidates uh, in the race for mayor. And one of the topics that kept coming up was this uh, NASCAR deal. That Mayor Lightfoot did, apparently, in conjunction with no other elected official, just kind of on her own and uh, without consultation with even the alderman, who Brendan Riley, who, uh, you know, is the alder person for at least part of the downtown area. No consultations. Well, we first found out that uh, places like the Art Institute were really worried about the vibration. There's even the possibility that they will pack up some of their art on display and take it to a different location because they are worried that the vibration caused by the NASCAR race will uh, be damaging. So uh, there's that. Anybody who uh, is in a 16-inch softball league has already gotten the bad news that a lot of their games that would normally take place in Grant Park uh, are either not going to take place or they're going to get moved to other locations. That's not making those folks very happy. And now we learn that, oh, wait, isn't that usually around the time we do Taste of Chicago? Oh, yeah. Oh, don't worry. We'll just move Taste of Chicago to Navy Pier. Um, that's taken a lot of people by surprise, too. Whether or not NASCAR brings in the big tourist dollars, that the mayor is counting on, we know for sure Taste of Chicago does. But it is now displaced and is going to be shipped over to Navy Pier. Uh, so the, um, you know, we're going to elect a new mayor in April. But when... Something is already set in motion, like the new mayor can't undo the casino. Too many contracts have been signed. I would assume the same thing is true for this uh, NASCAR deal. Mayor uh, Lightfoot got a lot of grief for essentially doing this on her own in consultation with virtually no one. And uh, so now all of a sudden it's like, oh, wait, Taste of Chicago? Yeah. Hmm. 16 or so? Oh, yeah. 16. We'll move those people, too. Oh, Art Institute? You're worried that some of your stuff will, like, get vibrated into pieces? Oh, don't worry. Just pack it all up, put it on a truck, and take it somewhere. 
the uh, fallout from this supposed super money-making event continues. We'll keep an eye on that. And uh, speaking about the race for mayor, want to? I'm going to, from time to time, share with you some of the ads the candidates are are putting out. We've um, we're also going to talk to some of the people who are making endorsements in the race. Uh, tomorrow, we're going to be talking with Representative Kelly Cassidy, who has endorsed Brandon Johnson. Uh, Paul Vallis recently um, put together an ad where he reminds people that when Bill Clinton was president, Bill Clinton had lots of nice things to say about him. Listen to this uh, Clinton ad for Vallis. President Bill Clinton called on the nation to follow what Paul Vallis accomplished as head of Chicago schools. Just look at Chicago, which ended social promotion and made summer school mandatory for those who don't master the basics. Math and reading scores are up three years running with some of the biggest gains in some of the poorest neighborhoods. It will work, and we should do it. As mayor, Paul Vallis will do it again for all of Chicago. Yeah, it's not exactly a flat-out endorsement, but hey, if Bill Clinton were saying things about me like that, I'd have an ad running on it, too. And um, Brandon Johnson is not without ads. You've heard a lot of Brandon Johnson on this station before the runoff. He had a lot of commercials running with us where he uh, spoke to the progressive audience that this radio station has. I want to share, in the interest of fairness, I want to share one of Brandon's campaign ads with you now. Brandon Johnson has a plan to make Chicago safer, grow Chicago businesses, and create jobs. Brandon's plan will improve public schools for all of our kids. For mayor, Brandon Johnson is better for Chicago. I don't know if you had a chance to see it last night. Marianne Ahern did uh, the very first face-off with Vallis and Johnson. I think there were, she, there was a lot of good ground covered. I felt that they were trying to squeeze too much in. Uh, it felt really frantic to me. Uh, Marianne Ahern was, was, was reading off her questions like as fast as she could. Each candidate had 45 seconds to answer. They were kind of answering like this too. And it was just the whole, it was hard after a while for me to listen because it was, it felt, it felt frantic. I think the questions were good. I think that they tried to get too much into the allotted time. Also, I thought it was it was interesting. We're going to obviously, whether you believe in polls or not, and you got to take them with a grain of salt, but they're kind of fun. But um, most of the polling shows Paul Vallis, at least at this moment in time, ahead of Brandon Johnson. And I thought... In last night's forum, that's kind of how they behaved. Uh, Brandon Johnson was attacking Paul. I mean, not like viciously and not meanly, but, you know, was like, well, you know, Paul did this and now we have this bad consequence. And he kept saying Paul Vallis's name, whereas I don't know, I think maybe a couple of times Paul Vallis mentioned Brandon Johnson's name, but not very much. 
regardless of what polling you follow or what you believe, at last night's mayoral forum, Paul Vallis, I think, presented the demeanor of somebody who knows they're ahead. People, politicians, when they know they're ahead in a race, all they want to do is not mess up, you know, not say something stupid or do something stupid. But when you are not the front runner, that's when you are attacking, attacking, attacking to try to rattle them or gain some ground. And that was the dynamic that I saw last night. So regardless of the polling, it seems to me that both candidates consider Vallis the front runner and Brandon the guy who's got to kind of make up lost ground. Oh, we'll, I will be co-moderating a forum this Saturday downtown. If you'd uh, like to be a part of it, uh, I will try to uh, tweet out a link to the event Saturday. You do have to register, though tickets are free, and the auditorium holds about 600 people, 2 to 4 this Saturday. We're going to take a break. We're going to be back with George Bliss, who is live out in the community uh, as a Chicago police officer is laid to rest today. We'll be back with more after this. Tonight on Democracy Now! The U.S. Justice Department accuses the Louisville police of unlawfully discriminating against the city's black population and using excessive force. Then, apartheid American style. We go to Jackson, Mississippi, where white Republican state lawmakers want to set up an unelected superstructure to oversee the black majority city. All those stories and more tonight at 11 on WCPT 820. Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. George Bliss is um, part of the crowd that has come to lay Chicago police officer Andre Mauricio Vasquez Lasso to rest. He was shot and killed in the line of duty, uh, answering a a domestic disturbance call. George joins us now. Hey, George. Yes, Joan. You know, last time we spoke about this very sad subject, it was, of course, Officer Ella French. And Mm -hmm. yeah, not that long ago, the very same church, a beautiful church, St. Rita on 79th and Western. And right now, Joan, the procession is approximately... Uh, halfway downtown on the Dan Ryan, and they're going to be proceeding west on the Eisenhower Expressway. Some of us call it 290, and they get off at Harlem Avenue and proceed to Forest Park, where we'll have his burial. But, Joan, I think the saddest thing is, I look at the statistics, only 32 years of age, he came to Columbia as a young man to find a better world and became a police officer about five years ago, and then, of course, uh, the confrontation, it's domestic uh, argument, engaged parking, lost his life. Very, very sad. Uh, I am out in the western suburbs as I call in, and uh, Roosevelt Road, for instance, is lined with people. Uh, she's just a moving tribute to this young man that probably most of these people out here in the western suburbs never met, but uh, they're on Roosevelt Road uh, waiting for the procession to pass through. Have you seen any of the... Um high-profile police officers or political people uh, at today? I sure have. I saw Superintendent Brown. 
Well, obviously, he was, a, I guess you'd call him a lame duck superintendent. He spoke at the Mass. Uh, Mayor Lightfoot was, in fact, there. And uh, I've always been one to try to say exactly what I see. Several policemen did look away when they did approach St. Rita. Uh, you know, hard feelings, sadness all over. It's not an easy subject to talk about, quite frankly. And the yeah. district, the 8th district, which is on the Gage Park area approximately, they are very sad over there as well, Joan. It's just something you just don't like to call in, but every time I see it, it, it as I told you off air, it's just you can cut the air with a knife, the thickness, the tension. It's, 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 it's overwhelming. It really is to see a young man so early in life and his beautiful wife uh, now without a husband, a widow. It's, it, it's hard to take, quite frankly. It really is. Yeah. It always is, George. Um, thank you for being there and um, yes. giving us uh, um, a look at the scene today as uh, this young officer, uh, Vasquez Lasso, was uh, laid to rest, uh, killed in the line of duty. Thank, thank you, George. Yes. God bless the uh, Lasso family and the Chicago Police Department. Thank you, John. You're welcome. Um, he was talking about Superintendent David Brown being there and speaking at the funeral mass. Uh, Superintendent Brown has turned in his resignation. Of course, um, Mayor Lightfoot said, you know, when we asked her, she said it was moot because he's 63 and that's the retirement age. Um, but pretty much every other mayoral candidate but her said that uh, firing him was going to be like job one. So he did announce his retirement at the time. He said his last day was going to be March 16th, which is a week from today. David Brown. By the way, that was one thing both of the mayoral candidates were asked about by Marianne Ahern last night. You know, who who are the people they're looking at? Name names. Well, neither of them wanted to name names, which is probably a good thing, because had they done that, those officers would immediately have come under a lot of scrutiny. But they both said, both Brandon Johnson and Paul Vallis said that they are having those discussions right now so that whichever one of them is elected will be um, ready on day one to name at least a new interim leader for the Chicago Police Department. There are other races other than the mayoral race that are going to be voted on on April 4th. A lot of the aldermanic races went to a runoff. One of those is in the 48th Ward. We are going to talk to Joe Dunn right after this. Take Jonas Pazito live, local, and progressive with you on the go by using the TuneIn app on your phone. Just search for WCPT 820. Jonas Pazito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT Willow Springs, is powered by ComEd. See how ComEd is preparing for a clean energy future at comed.com slash clean energy. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. In a lot of Chicago wards, it was kind of open season to run for the city council seat because there were at least 15 seats where the person had either run for a different office and was going to take on that. They were retiring um, a couple of the older people, Roderick Sawyer and Sophia King, had left the city council to um, to wage a campaign to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago. Lots of open seats. 
Some of them open, as I said, because of retirements. Harry Osterman uh, retired from the 48th Ward, which opened that race up to a number of folks who decided that uh, being the new 48th Ward alder person was just their cup of tea. There is now a runoff that is going to happen April 4th between Joe Dunn and uh, Lenny Manal Hoppenworth. Joe Dunn joins us now to talk about his candidacy and his love of the 48th Ward. Joe, how are you? I'm very well, Joan. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. You know, when I was talking to Lenny, she said, you know, the 48th Ward isn't all that big. And she said, sometimes Joe and I run into each other when we're when we're out campaigning. Um, but this is not um, a vitriolic race. I don't have to worry about the two of you ending up in fisticuffs if you round the corner and uh, face off with one another. Um, you are both two of the most reasonable people I've had the opportunity to speak with since I've been in this job. Tell my tell my audience about yourself. Sure. So uh, I was born and raised here in the 48th Ward. Um, my uh, my children are the fourth generation of my par- uh, my family to live right here in the neighborhood. My parents grew up here, um, and my grandparents lived here. So I've got a a, a long history. Uh, deep roots in, in the community, and uh, that's really, you know, and a deep love of the community, which is one of the things that really pushed me to run for alderman when Alderman Osterman stepped down. Um, I uh, um, I have an MBA from Northwestern University, and I, I went to night school while I was working here in the city and, and lived um, lived at Norwood. So I was, um, you know, a, a block from home while my mother was, uh, at the time she was, uh, she had cancer, and, and my brother and I took turns uh, caring for her while I went to graduate school. And it's just been, you know, the, the neighborhood and the community meant a lot to me. And um, I've spent my career uh, providing affordable housing in, in the city, uh, in neighborhoods all over the city, from, from Woodlawn up to uh, Edgewater and Uptown and, and over west in North Lawndale and uh, Logan Square, Humboldt Park. I, I could go on with the the neighborhoods, but I've been uh, committed to trying to improve the lives of people in the city. And uh, I think now I have an opportunity to do that right here and where I grew up and where my family's from. And uh, that's exciting to me. Tell me about your relationship with Harry Osterman. Okay. Uh, well, Harry has endorsed me uh, as a candidate. I've known Harry. Um, I've known Harry, you know, just being in the neighborhood. I don't know how many years it's been, but uh he also grew up in the neighborhood, so with the, the longevity here, uh, I've known him uh, and his family, uh, gosh, going back more than 20 years. Um, uh, I, you know, uh, I, I respected him as an alderman. I think he's done a very good job, uh, you know, and uh, have helped, you know, back when he ran for alderman, I think I passed petitions for him and um, have been supportive of him as an alderman. I was honored to, to earn his support uh, for my campaign. What is it about you, uh, who you are, your personality, your work history? What do you think particularly appealed to Harry? Did he tell you? You know, I think it was, um, I don't know that he articulated it uh, it specifically like that, but I think it was uh, a number of things. One, it was uh, the hard work I put into the campaign and and the community support I built uh, over the the first few months uh, because he didn't endorse right out of the box. He, he, he waited a while, um, and, and I think I earned that endorsement. 
Uh, and part of it also is just the, the skills and experience that I have from my professional career. I, I believe I'm uh, ready to start day one as an alderman. I've worked with aldermen and community groups across the city. I've worked with the Department of Planning, the Department of Housing, and, and, and gosh knows how many other departments in the city. And I, I know that city council process. I, I've shepherded uh, redevelopment agreements and, and ordinances and, and loan documents through uh, through the city process and, and through city government and, and city council and, and been able to be successful with that and um, and deliver, deliver the affordable housing units on the back end after all that negotiation. So I think that all of that, um, I believe all of that weighed in on his, uh, his decision to endorse me. How would you describe your politics? Would you call yourself, would you label yourself with the P word, progressive? Yes, I, I, I would. I think I'm progressive. I'm, I'm uh, maybe more of a moderate progressive uh, these days, but uh, I don't think that uh, I don't think that you operate in the, the field of affordable housing w- without having a, a pretty progressive view of, of politics. And um, uh, you know, uh, currently, even though I'm on leave right now and, and will will resign if I'm elected, but currently I work for Bickerdike Redevelopment Corporation, which is a a community-based uh, not-for-profit in, in Humboldt Park. And it's uh, it's been a very progressive organization over the years, and I'm, I'm, I'm proud to work there. So, so yeah, I would, use that, I would use that label. You have also, I know, been involved in neighborhood schools. Talk about that. Sure, sure. Uh, so my, uh, my eldest graduated from, uh, from Pierce Elementary two years ago, and she's over at Lane. Uh, and I have two children uh, still at Pierce, an eighth grader and a sixth grader. And um, so we've been a, a, a Pierce family for, for about a dozen years or more. And uh, when, when Bridget first started there, I got involved in the Friends of Pierce uh, fundraising organization, which, uh, you know, walking in day one, it felt really weird to me that people were asking me to raise money for a public school. But, but there are... You know there are enrichment programs and, and arts programming that that aren't provided by uh, CPS, which which I would really it would be great if they if the funding was there. I mean I think uh, arts arts is very important to my family, but I got involved in the uh, the fundraising to help provide those programs in the school and, and to provide uh, um, stipends so that teachers didn't necessarily have to come out of their pocket to to purchase Kleenex and things like that for their classrooms. Um, and my involvement on the Friends of Pierce board led to my running for the local school council, uh, where I was uh, I was elected three times. And in the, the first term, we wound up um, voting to to select a new principal. We didn't extend the existing principal's contract for a number of reasons, and we were able to find um, we were able to find a really outstanding principal. And I'm proud of that. I ran the principal selection committee, and uh, we had a, a unanimous vote to hire. Uh, Principal Zaney, who uh, just had her contract extended by the current uh, school council, and I think she's done an outstanding job. And I was really proud to to be part of uh, helping helping the school over those years. I stepped down from my last role at the school last June and thought that I would be taking a respite from community engagement, and then <laughs> carry through us all a curveball. And, and here I am uh, back back in it. What makes you want to go from the private sector to public life? It was a hard decision, to be honest. It was a hard decision, but it, I had a lot of neighbors and friends and community members encouraging me and, and pushing me to do it, um, knowing me from the school, knowing my work uh, 
professionally and telling me that, you know, oh, you're the guy to do it. You've got the skill set. You, you've got the demeanor and, and you can be successful and you should do it. So I had people pushing me to do that. And it, it took a, it took a while for me to reach the decision, but it felt like something I, I, it felt ultimately it felt like something I had to do to, to run for alderman. I, like I said, at the outset, I care about the community. Uh, I care about my neighbors. My, my kids are growing up here on the same streets I grew up on. And I want to see, I want to see them have that same opportunity, them and, and the other kids in the neighborhood. I want to see them all have that same opportunity to grow up here, to be able to remain here, uh, maybe purchase a house or a condominium of their own and, and live here and, and, uh, you know, maybe see their kids grow up here. I think that's to one of the beauties of our neighborhood is there's, there's generational families that have been here and it's uh you know, I, I think there's other neighborhoods in the city that are probably like that, but it feels very special to me here in, in Edgewater and, and the 48th Ward. And um, with with the cost of living and the increasing property taxes and uh, everyone being concerned about public safety, there's we've we've seen families leave. We've seen families that we were friends with at Pierce move out to the suburbs because of uh, concerns about the schools and that, that they didn't think that their kids might get into the selected enrollment high schools and, and their taxes are going up and we've seen um, older older neighbors move out to the suburbs because they're just they, they're on a fixed income and they can't afford to stay in their homes and um, you know I, I felt like this is an opportunity for me to try and help help address some of those concerns in the neighborhood and the city and, and try and make sure that um, the neighborhood stays the diverse welcoming neighborhood that it has been for so many years. Joe Dunn and Lenny Manal Hoppenworth are going to be in the runoff election April 4th to be the new alder of the 48th Ward, where Harry Osterman is retiring. We are going to take a break. And um, I don't know if you saw this, Joe, but the Black Club Chicago was reporting that uh, the unhoused folks who have been making O'Hare Airport their refuge that uh, those people were removed. One person told Block Club Chicago, they told me I had to leave and they won't let me back in. I asked them where I could go. They said it's not our problem. We are going to talk to Joe Dunn about what, as an older person, he could do about this situation when we come right back after this. Podcasts of Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Just search WCPT 820. Because facts matter. You are listening to WCPT 820. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 20. We are talking about the runoff election in the 48th Ward. April 4th, when Chicagoans go back to the polls, some of them are um, going to be electing a new city council member. In the 48th Ward, Harry Osterman has retired, and the top two vote-getters were Joe Dunn, who came away with about 27% of the vote in a field of 10, and Lenny Manal Hoppenworth, who came away with a little bit over 21 percent of the vote in the 48th Ward. We're talking to Joe Dunn right now, and he is somebody who is experienced in the world of affordable housing. It's part of 
what he has done for a living. And before we went to break, I mentioned a new article in Block Club Chicago. The headline is O'Hare Airport flushed out people experiencing homelessness as security presence increases. And we, I get it, Joe. I mean, you know, I mean, the mayor of Chicago doesn't want all these people going through the airport and seeing this particular problem. But just physically removing them and dumping them somewhere else isn't a fix. As a city council member, how will you tackle this? Well, it's really disheartening for me. I hadn't I hadn't seen that article. It's disheartening to me to hear uh I think you said that, that the, the quote was, it's not our problem to fix uh, from someone at O'Hare, or, or, or at least in that article. And that's disheartening to hear, because I think it, it, it is our problem to fix. It's all of our problem to fix. And, and there are people living, in, there were the people living at O'Hare. There's people living in the parks along the lakefront. Um, and COVID has really, I think, exacerbated the, the, the crisis that's there. Um, i I I'm a big proponent of the, um, you know, there's a housing first model. Uh, if, if you're familiar with that, it, it's the the concept is that you get people housed and then you bring the wraparound services to them to 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 get them uh, stably housed and, and hopefully then you get them through a uh, almost like a continuum from from the initial housing to stable housing and, and, and you help them to get their lives back on track and and um, and become uh, you know. Uh, back out into to society. Um, and I think that in order to do that uh, as an alderman, um, I believe we really need to focus on rental, uh, rental subsidy assistance. Uh, there are, there are units out there. As you mentioned, I'm, I, I've, I've been involved in affordable housing for many years. Uh, one of the projects uh, I was working on at Holston real estate development, which is under construction now is the, the, the renovation of the Lawson House YMCA, which will be 400 units of uh, supportive housing uh, at, at Grand and Dearborn in, in the city of Chicago, and and that's a you know that's a project. It, it's important and it's needed, and it has taken many years to get done. I think we first negotiated the acquisition from the YMCA in, in 2012, uh, so that's a long time ago, and we can't wait that long to address. The need, uh, which is where I think that the rental housing, uh, the rental subsidy programs are, are ideal because you can get people into a unit right away with a rental subsidy. You can take someone with no income, find them a home, get them housed, and get them stabilized. And we have the Chicago Low Income Housing Trust Fund in the city of Chicago, which is uh, which provides uh, rental subsidies. We also, um, I think, uh, we need to be advocating for new streams of Section Eight rental assistance from the federal government. And, and uh, as an alderman, I would be advocating for both of those. There was a housing expert Eric Zorn had on a few weeks ago when he subbed for me. And the takeaway from that conversation was that, uh, indeed, the city seems to have shifted to a uh, housing model as opposed to a shelter model. But he said the problem was that there was only one pot of money and rather than rather than creating new funds some of the money that had been going to shelters was now going to bring this kind of housing online but it, most of it wasn't online yet and yet because the money had been taken away from shelters the city had something like only half or 40% of the shelter beds 
that they had had previously and that that was actually driving more people to the bridges and the viaducts than before. Um, what can city council do to bridge that gap? And do you support um, the um, move that was backed by Maria Haddon and others to raise the real estate transfer tax on properties that sell at over a million dollars and take those funds to create some kind of either temporary or permanent housing. Yeah, so, so you're talking about the um, the Bring Chicago Home Ordinance. And yes. I've had a number of conversations. Yes, I've had a number of conversations about that, and I think you and I spoke about that uh, when we last spoke. Uh, I'm supportive of the, the Bring Chicago Home Ordinance. I think it's important that we're finding sources of revenue to provide housing and supportive services as well for, for people that need them. Because uh, the services are as important as the housing, whether it's a shelter bed or, or, a, or, or a standalone apartment. Um, what, what, I've, what I've seen is that it seems like that ordinance is sort of stuck in the mud and it's, it hasn't advanced. And um, I think that you know, part of well, the sense I, is that Mayor Lightfoot didn't want it to go forward because the day they were trying to bring it into or out of committee, all of a sudden several aldermen went out and stood in the hallway so they didn't have a quorum. And the belief was that that was indirectly a directive from the mayor. Yeah, and I, I wasn't part of that city council, so I don't know what if you know, I don't know if there was a directive or not, but I do know that as I've gone through my campaign, I've talked to organizations that that are allies of the uh, that that should be allies of the ordinance, and they feel like they weren't at the table when it was negotiated. and um, And I, I think that what we need to do is bring bring them to the table and, and have a conversation. It is you know, to me, it is the million dollar mark for value is that. Is that the right point? Should it be a, a should there be a graduated value where the the tax you know we're, we're not just like it's right now a million is an inflection point where the tax is lower below and higher above and, and you know to, is it is can we get it done if we make it a graduated tax? I, I think we need to look at how can we get it done because it's important and it, it needs to get done. We need to have a source of revenue uh, so that so that we can provide this housing and the services whether it's shelter beds or or uh, or permanent supportive housing. It needs to get done. This is one of your areas of expertise. What are the areas of government that you are passionate about? Um, beyond housing? Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, we know that this is an, a world you come from. You know about yeah, this. But yeah. I have found that frequently when people want to become elected officials, they have some area that they feel really passionate about that they feel has been neglected or a cause they want to publicize or a program they want to promote uh, over and above where they may have come from. It's where they where they want to go. Where do you want to go, Joe? <laughs> I don't know that there's anywhere I want to go. I'm, I'm where I want to be right here in the 48th Ward. Uh, I, I think what I'm passionate about is, is community involvement and community engagement and and. Uh, I want to see that done robustly uh, as an alderman so that people are involved in the decision-making process and, and people have a, an opportunity to speak up and have their voices be heard. I think one, one of the areas, uh, and it, it's, it's not directly tied to housing, but um, it is the economic development in the ward. We have a couple of business districts that are, are struggling. Um, uh, 
maybe because of COVID. I mean, COVID hasn't helped, but uh, but there's you know there, there's a there's an interaction between housing and business districts, and, and uh, when you have problem buildings or buildings that aren't well managed, it can it can have a uh, it can have an impact beyond uh, beyond just the four walls of the building. And I think that uh, what I'm passionate about is trying to make sure that all of the all of the interests in the neighborhood, whether it's the business owners and, and, and renters and, and the property owners, are working together to make the, the neighborhood better. And I think that by by engaging the community, hopefully we can we can focus on community uh, in, in uh, or the economic development in these districts because it's important. A lot of a lot of the businesses in, in Edgewater has prided itself on the small business districts we have, uh, Andersonville. And, and the Bryn Mawr corridor, where it's uh, small business owners, who a lot of them who live in the neighborhood, um, and we need to make sure we're supporting them as well. And I guess that that's an area of passion for me is making sure that we're supporting those business districts and the business owners, so that we can have the the you know the the small local businesses that I know the neighborhood's proud of. You and Lenny are both really nice people. You obviously both have a great passion for the Forty Eighth Ward. Where are your differences? How can the voters of the 48th Ward figure out which one of you they want to send to city council? Um, you're, you have a lot in common. What What are the things that set you apart? You know, for me, I, I, I think one of the key things is just the um, is my experience and my ability to my understanding of the city council process and my understanding of government having worked with the government for uh, for the last uh, 17 years or so, uh, and also having worked previously, I, I worked for the State of Illinois Medical District Commission and uh, a couple of years with the Department of Planning. So I have a I, I have a knowledge of how the city works and how to get things done. And I think that the, the key difference for me is that we're we're looking at a new mayor and a city council that will be significantly different and uh, a lot of new council members. I think I've got experience to step in there day one and be an uh, effective representative for the needs of the 48th Ward uh, without having a significant learning curve. I know there's going to be stuff I need to learn. Uh, I've never been an alderman before, but um, I have worked with many of the aldermen that are, that are on the council, and um, I, I, I think I can step in there and be effective from the get-go. Raymond Lopez from the 15th Ward told me that when he was first elected to the city council back in the day, Ed Burke used to have this three-inch thick binder he would give to all the new council members. And it was like how to get things done, how everything works. And uh, we were laughing about it, but he said he might bring he might bring an idea along those lines back to hand it to the new members, since there's going to be quite a number of new city council members. So hopefully you won't have to hit the ground com- running com- completely. Uh, Joe, thank you so much for being a part of our discussion today. Hey, uh, tell our listeners where they can find out more about your campaign. Sure. So we've got a campaign office at 5459 North Broadway, and the lights are on and the doors open. Uh, people can stop by, and, and uh, if I'm here, I'm happy to talk to, to I'm happy to talk to people as they come in. But we're staffed up. Erica Caldwell is our new campaign manager. She's right out front, and we're we're out online on uh, uh, www.joedunnfor48.com, and we're also on Instagram and Facebook. So you can find us in any one of those places. 
Joe Dunn, he's everywhere. Uh, and you can go to his office and meet him in person. Joe, thanks again. I wish you a lot of luck, and I'm sure we will be talking again in the future. That's so great. Thank you so much for having me on, Joe. You're very welcome. We are going to take a break for news, and when we come back, we haven't spoken to Isaac Wright in a while. He's a partner at the Rural Voter Institute. When we uh, talked to him a while ago, he said that one of the things that Democrats need to do to be successful election after election is not to just drop in and then disappear, that, that Democrats needed to have a presence that they needed to talk to rural voters all year long, not just in the weeks before an election. We're going to get him to tell us whether or not he sees that happening and have his uh, comments on other things when we come right back after this. The Tom Hartman Radio Program provides all of the intelligence, information, and insight you'll need to win the water cooler wars. Weekdays 11 to 2, right here on WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. I'm telling you, CPT 820. Isaac Wright is a partner at the Rural Voter Institute, and we touch base with him every few months to see how we as Democrats are doing and what rural voters want and need from us and whether or not we are actually uh, giving them those things. Isaac, how have you been? Good, Joan. How are you? I'm good. You know, we've been a little distracted here with this mayor's race thing that's kind of yeah. um, absorbed a lot of the oxygen in the room. Uh, but it, we still have to talk about what is going on nationally, because um, if you, you focus too much on what's happening locally and you will spontaneously combust and nobody wants to see that, Isaac. So let's take a step back. And uh, if you wouldn't mind, we'll look at the big picture here. When we spoke last, you said that what Democrats need to do is be on the ground, month after month, year in and year out, that, that, that politicians can't just parachute in a month or two months before an election and expect to win over rural voters. Do you still feel that way? Yeah, absolutely. I think we need to be on the ground. I think I'm hearing some good things about organizing coming out of the DNC for 2024 already. Um, I think that's a good sign. Um, I'm, 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 I'm very happy with what I'm hearing from there that I'm hoping we're going to see a more aggressive effort on that front than what we have in years past. So you're hoping to see it. Does that mean we're not really there yet? Well, I think you only have to look at the numbers to know we're not there yet with where we need to be um, with the rural and small town vote in the country. Right. Um, mm-hmm. We only need to look at past elections and the trend lines to know we're, we're, we're not doing what we need to be doing. And what we've been doing hasn't been working. And a large part of that is we haven't been doing a lot. Um, it is getting, I think, more attention now than it has in years past. Um, and I think we are starting to see some of these stakeholder organizations 
um, that are focused on rural and small town um, voter turnout, et cetera, persuasion, um, are, are starting to collaborate. I think the DNC is going to try to help facilitate that. And I'm very, very excited to see that. So would that be something that, like, would this be the purview of Jamie Harrison, you know, somebody who really looks at Democratic politics with a with a national eye? Would it be the state organizations well, I think who, who the, does this? Who gets this off the ground? Execution is almost certainly going to happen at the state party level, right? Um, the resources need to be. Uh, not every state party has the equal amount of resources as others, um, and so there has to be some work on that to make sure every party, every state party that needs it, has the resources to do an effective year-round outreach campaign. Um, but in the end, I think the the vehicle for this has got to be at the state party level. Um, but I think we have the uh, uh, rural caucus. I believe it's chair uh, at the DNC now is herself a former um, state party ED in a rural state, um, and I think that's a really good sign. Um, I believe she used to be ED of the North Dakota Party, if I'm not mistaken, um, and I knew her in that capacity. Uh, and I think that's a good sign for what we have ahead that there is more um, focus um, than what there has been in the past. When you saw her in that capacity, what did you see that you think is a positive that she is going to be bringing with her to a more national perspective? We actually, I think we met for the first time when she was ED of the state party. And uh, I was um, at a meeting of all the state party chairs and EDs presenting on how we do a better job with uh, rural voter and small town voter outreach. And uh, she was one of the people that came up and engaged about what they were doing in her state, um, where she saw needs to go ahead. Um, And that was literally how we met was the discussion of how we as Democrats, we as progressives do a better job communicating, not just at, but with rural and small town voters. Um, And so that's why I know this is somebody who has has been thinking about this for a long time, um, who has her, her mind on it. Um, who has experience with it, and uh, and I'm I'm very excited to see what comes ahead. Isaac, let's back up a little bit. I mean, okay, we know that no ethnic group or demographic group is a monolith. But having said that, what what do you know about rural voters and how they might be different than urban voters? Well, I think you just hit like such a great point, which is the fact there is no, there are no monolithic voting blocks in terms of demographics. There are always subsets. And you know, yet we have to keep in mind that a, um, a rural voter in the Southwest is very different than uh, a rural voter uh, in the Midwest. Uh, and Midwestern rural culture is different than rural Southeastern culture, for example. Um, but, you know, we have spent the last few years doing research specifically with Midwest battleground states, small town and rural voters um, about value sets and communication. Um, and I'm hoping to see that research expand its geographic footprint um, in the future. But I think we can take some, some core things from that um, value on hard work, um, sort of a sense of self-determination for one's own future and one's local community. Um, which is absolutely fascinating. Talking about self-determination, the idea of um, uh, making community-level decisions and individual-level decisions. 
uh, very strong um, sensitive into individuality, et cetera. Um, and again, this is all things that have been published on our website uh, with the research and studies there that uh, for folks who are interested in this, I'd encourage you to visit um, worldvoterinstitute.org. Um, but a lot of those observations, I think, are things that are fairly universal. But again, we, like you said, we don't want to treat any one voter demographic as monolithic. You made an interesting comment at the beginning of, of this answer that while there certainly rural voters are not a monolith, there are different ways in which they might be different. One of those ways being whether they are northern or southern. Talk more about that, Isaac. Well, there are individual um, cultures, right? Um, and a lot of it goes back to um, history, uh, immigrant flows through the country, the Scotch-Irish traditions um, that moved over the Appalachians into the settlement of the Southeast, um, and a lot of those traditions uh, that were continued down uh, in different ways through today heavily influenced culture um, in the Midwest. You know, you can certainly see a strong uh, Scandinavian um in terms of religious culture, the, the Lutheran influence, for example, um, in states like Minnesota. And so there are serious things. And then there are also smaller cultural things that are just important to know your audience, right? Um, if I'm going to be uh, in Wisconsin or Minnesota, either one, um, I want to be prepared to, to enter the debate about which is better, Lake Perch or Walleye. I also know if I'm in in Wisconsin, I know that a squeaker is a cheese curd that's so fresh it squeaks on your teeth. And uh, (laughs) I know what it means to go to dinner to supper club in Wisconsin. And in Minnesota, I'm familiar with the Minnesota long goodbye and what a hot dish is, right? Okay, okay, okay. I don't don't know what those things are. Educate me. A long goodbye (laughs) and a hot dish? Uh, There is a a tradition that saying goodbye in Minnesota is, is usually a a very long process, right? Um, don't be surprised if, if saying goodbye takes five to ten minutes. Um, long goodbyes. Uh, it's just a cultural tradition there. Um, hot dish is the term for a casserole. Okay. And yeah. curds squeak on your teeth? Uh, yeah, that's a, a term for the you, cheese curds in Wisconsin that are so fresh they squeak when you bite into them, and they're called squeakers. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you had squeakers? Do they really squeak? I have, yeah, I have. I love food, right? Uh, <laughs> so uh, you come to the southeast, right? Um, in the Appalachia uh, region, you know, ramps um, are still a thing, right? And uh, you, you move further west, you know, it was not that long ago there were raccoon suppers as political suppers in the southeast, all over the southeast. I think there's one left in the southeast, if I'm not mistaken, but they were much more common, say, 20 years ago, right? But And that's not just a euphemism. No, it, they act- they, it, it's, it's raccoon, like the furry animal with the tail. Okay. Um, served to like a thousand people while politicians stand up and give speeches. Um, but I think that's, that's mostly died out. But there is a, a rich tradition, I think, in the southeast of food and politics. Right. Of people coming together for meals um, and food to hear candidates and elected officials come speak. Well, you know, you make a really interesting point. And and I think this also speaks to your suggestion last time we spoke that to really win over rural voters, 
You can't just parachute in. You have to be there. You have to have an organization on the ground 365 days a year because those will be the people who speak the language and understand the idioms. You know, some somebody comes in like me and, and doesn't know what anybody's talking about. It's going to be hard for me to get them to listen to what I have to say. Right. This might come as a shocker, but if you put me in rural Oregon or rural Washington State and people hear my accent, they know I'm probably not going to be local. Um, <laughs> but that ability to cross cultural bridges doesn't always require somebody who spent their whole life in the community. It can be somebody who is committed um, to the community, right? But somebody who is there, um, who is there year-round, who comes, like you said, to understand the idioms and the nuances of culture. And And somebody um, who knows what their problems are. You know, if you live in a farming community where subsidies are a big deal, and, you know, even with a southern accent, if you're in Oregon and you know about subsidies and can talk that language, I think that supersedes um, where you came from if you understand their issues. Yeah. And and there are threads, you know, and of course, remember, I'm, I'm one of the first people to always say one thing we do as Democrats is we often treat agriculture policy and um, and rural issues as interchangeable. And, you know, 90 percent of rural Americans and small town Americans don't work in the ag industry. Um, that's a flaw we frequently do. But that said, there are definitely um, economic community impacts that uh can stretch some of those those borders uh, between regions of the country. For example, you know whether you're producing beef cattle in South Dakota, um, in Colorado, or in Kentucky, um, country of origin labeling on beef major issue. We need to take a break. I'm talking to Isaac Wright, who's a partner with the Rural Voter Institute. We're going to continue this discussion right after this. Facebook. Message us. Instagram. Follow us. Twitter. Tweet us. They keep me connected. Let's get social on the socials. WCPT 820. Hey, where's Hal Sparks? I'm not sure where he is now, but I know where you can find him Saturdays at 11. It'll be right here on WCPT 820 for the Hal Sparks radio program. Mega Worldwide. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm joined by Isaac Wright, who is a partner at the Rural Voter Institute. We talk from time to time about this really important segment of the voting population that sometimes parties almost seem to consider sort of an afterthought. Um, Isaac, give me an assessment of where things stand right now. What have we accomplished in this area? What do we still need to do? Well, I think that we, we, have, a, we have proven, I think, in the last election cycle that we can do better, um, that there are some proven tactics that work. Showing up is one of them. I think we saw that in the results in the Pennsylvania uh, U.S. Senate race, and I think we saw some results of that uh, in the Georgia um, U.S. Senate race. Um, but uh, you know, one of the things that we were talking about before the break that I want to circle back to, if you'll forgive me just momentarily, you know, the difference between ag policy and other policies and how they affect rural America, right? And what are we um, as progressives talking about? 
Um, and one, there was a, a very recent study, uh, the Chartist Center for Rural Health, that pointed out that of the roughly 2,200 rural hospitals in America, half are operating in the red. One in five is unstable and at risk of closing. That is a very real healthcare crisis. And the numbers are obviously much worse in states that did not expand Medicaid compared to those that did. And so this is literally a life and death issue in our rural communities. Democrats in the Obama administration era, uh, the work uh, the Biden administration has done to strengthen um, Obamacare or the ACA has offered a solution to improve literally this life or death issue facing rural communities. Are we as progressives out there having that conversation? Are we engaging in that conversation? And that's an opportunity that is very uh, front of mind um, because I think you've probably seen some of the same poll numbers I have about healthcare is, it remains a top issue in the country. Um, and this specific uh, study, finding the instability of, of the, literally at risk of closing, one in five of our rural hospitals, half of them operating in the red, headed in that direction. Um, there are community lives and individual lives at stake here. Um, and, and we've already been working on this issue as progressives for years, right? We put a solution on the table. How many of us are engaging with uh, community members in small towns saying, uh, call your legislator, tell them to institute Medicaid expansion. It can literally make the difference as to whether or not the hospital in our community closes or remains mm-hmm. viable. You know, a couple of states that did not expand Medicaid had the highest percentage of rural hospitals with negative uh, operating margins, Kansas and Wyoming. Um, which has well, states large- with Republican governors, uh, many of them turned their back on the federal funds that were made available if they would expansion, expand these programs. I mean, that's on them. I mean, that's, you know, if, you, if Democrats make the offer and a Republican governor says no, do you think rural voters get that? Hey, these people want to help me and these people don't. Are, are we out there having that conversation? And, and no, I don't think people are aware of it. I think that's where we need to have the conversation directly with voters. And, and, and honestly, we don't have to make it a partisan thing, right? Because when people realize who brought the solution, who did the action, right, that's what matters. And if we start with partisanship, we're going to turn off a lot of people um, that we're offering to work with. Um, and in states, again, you go to someone like a Kansas or Wyoming, Kansas, um, you know, that has 79% of its rural hospitals are operating in, in the red, 78% of rural hospitals in Wyoming operating in the red, right? Um, this is a, a healthcare crisis. And we need to engage on that and let people engage with us and work together and say, hey, you know, if you're a Republican voter, in a rural community or small town in one of these states, have you called your legislator? Have you asked them why they're in favor of closing our rural hospital? And are they willing to expand Medicaid to keep the hospital solvent? You know, it has a lot to do with uncompensated care dollars, that kind of thing. And so 
this is where we have a chance to actually bring a solution of a serious conversation and let our actions for we as Democrats, for we as progressives, let our actions prove who we are and have those conversations, you know, let people find what we're talking about in terms of, you know, we brought a solution to the table, right? If your legislators holding it up, call them and ask them why they want our local rural hospital to close. Are they willing to help save it? Because there are lives depending on it. When you ask that question, how many of the people you're talking to will say, yes, I, uh, I emailed, I called, I texted my state reps, the governor's office, because in my experience, uh, there's a real if you if you've done it once and you see that it's not scary and how easy it works, then you're more likely to do it again. But that hurdle of picking up the phone, it seems to be a really big one for most people. The hardest moment, I feel like of someone engaging as an advocate in the in our system of democracy is the first time. I think you're exactly right. Um, and once they realize, you know, it's not that hard to send an email. It's not that hard to make the phone call. Um, in fact, it can be quite informative and pleasant at times um, <laughs> to participate in our system of government. And when people realize that, I think you're exactly right. Once somebody's done, they're much more likely to advocate again on the same topic or other topics, right? Um and that's, you know, this is an example. Um, another one, you know, the uh, uh, the the child care um, drought, if you will, in rural America. Right. Um, rural counties across the country are facing um, shortages of child care that impacts the workforce, which impacts the economy. Um, and we as Democrats, we have the opportunity to engage in these conversations to work on these issues um, and not simply, and again, in no way am I uh, devaluing agriculture policy. It is the backbone of America. It's how we feed the country and the world. Um, But we cannot treat that as sort of a cure-all of rural policy or small-town policy. Um, Our rural and small-town communities face the same problems the rest of the country does and a lot of unique problems. Um, and those are things that, that we need to be more engaged, not just in talking, but listening. I'm speaking with Isaac Wright. He's a partner at the Rural Voter Institute. We are talking about how Dems can better communicate with rural voters and make rural voters understand the work being done on their behalf. When we come back, uh, President Biden made a speech about his budget. He also talked about all the things he's accomplished. I want to talk to Isaac about whether or not that message is really getting where it needs to go. We'll be back after this. Stay on top of the latest news in and around Chicago with Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT Willow Springs, is powered by ComEd. See how ComEd is preparing for a clean energy future at comed.com slash clean energy. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And I'm joined by Isaac Wright. He is a partner at the Rural Voter Institute. Isaac, in your capacity at the Institute, Do you obviously you get out and you talk to people, but do you do research? And if so, what kind of research and how do you do it? So a lot of what we do is opinion research. 
right? And that is talking with voters um, in terms of focus groups, individual interviews, um, and talking about the current issues. You know, in the last election cycle, um, we were doing every month, six weeks, we were doing uh, sort of the, the topical issues that were in the national dialogue at the time and talking with rural voters about those through focus groups, individual interviews, and discussing like the value sets that were brought to those and how people interpret them and how to more effectively talk about issues at the time. Um, I hope we'll be engaged in something similar to that uh, in the 2024 elections as well. So you, uh, the Rural Voter Institute is brought in to do these kinds of assessments, what, a year before a major election? Or you said you hope that you're going to be doing it uh, up you know, to prepare for the presidential election in 2024, at what point would the Democratic Party come to you and say, uh, you better get out there and uh, start collecting some data for us? Uh, well, so we uh, have literally been as recently as this morning working on our schedule for the year uh, for the election cycle and when to start. Um, and uh, I suspect we will be in the field um, certainly before this year's out, um, I hope late summer, um, possibly even early summer, um, and then keeping that kind of research up all the way through October of election, right? Um, trying to keep to the minute um, updated research on topical issues as well as the deep dives um, that we do about value sets and close examination, examination of those things, et cetera. How do you know where to target your efforts? I mean, I assume the people who want this information will say, you know, I really want you to look at, say, Montana. But Montana is a big state. And you go to one corner of Montana, you may get a different focus group result than another corner of Montana. So how how do you target voters? Who who do you look for? Well, I, I want to keep a little bit of the secret sauce uh, proprietary. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. All right. I, I understand that. I'm not asking for for yeah. trade for trade secrets. Right. Um, we, it, the long and short of it is, we try to match the segments of what, through other research and data crunching, we have found to be the most movable parts of. Um, the rural and small town electorate. And we want to try to build focus groups that most closely resemble those most persuadable segments of the community um, so that we are talking with the, the same set of voters, same archetype of voters that we are going to be engaging in persuasion um, over time. People say that um, the day when we can really rely on polling is over because it's it's so hard to get young people. You know, for a while they couldn't figure out anybody who had a cell phone and not a landline. Then we had certain Republican candidates telling people if a pollster calls you, lie to them. Um, I assume that you don't don't have some of these issues because you're not flat out saying who are you going to vote for in the next election. But more, if I understand it, you're saying like, you know, what are your concerns? Well, and I think there is a place for polling. Um, I do think it is evolving. How do you do it um, in this? In, how do you do it today and make well, it I, I think, really accurate? Yeah, so I think part of that has to do with the sampling as well as the delivery method. But while we often focus the conversation on 
um, we often focus the conversation on those kind of mechanics. Um, we sometimes miss the more strategic question of how we apply the polling. And part of it is, I think we, I say we, uh, the political consulting class of the world, the political operative strategist class of the world, uh, had grown too accustomed to simply saying, well, the poll says, well, the poll says. Um, even the best of polls is nothing more than a snapshot of public opinion uh, at a moment in time. Uh, that needs to be treated as such, right? Um, just like there was a time when you know, data modeling, if you remember when uh, data modeling was um, first became all the rage, um, and it was a game changer in a lot of ways. But in the end, uh, there were a lot of people who began to treat data modeling itself as a strategy rather than a tactic. And that's very dangerous, right? Whether any kind of opinion research or data research, whether it is um, modeling, whether it is polling, whether it is focus grouping, um, it has a role. Um, but it is never a be-all, end-all. And that's one thing that uh, I think there's an entire class of political operatives that you know, sometimes we, we lose sight of that. Uh, and some things are not just a science, but they are both an art and a science. We found in this um, mayoral election we had on February 28th, I just started pretty much you know, laughing every day because uh, at least the top five in the nine field, uh, the nine candidate field, were always sharing almost, it seemed on a daily basis, a poll that they had done that showed that it, they were either first or they were right there neck and neck with whoever was first. So give us, you're a, you're a data guy. Give us some things to look for and watch out for when somebody comes to us with a poll. Uh, I would always look for the source, right? And if they're releasing the whole poll, um, how is it delivered? Uh, and you can sometimes get a pretty good sense of that. Is this a poll that was um, meant to provide a, a specific snapshot of a horse race, i.e., you know, today this candidate is up three points over that candidate kind of question. Um, or uh, is this a poll that was, you know, intended to determine a path to victory, right? It's less about where we stand today than it is about how do we get to where we're going and what's the roadmap of how to get there. Um, and then is a poll that was uh, perhaps intended um, to have a positive result in some way to um, – <laughs> The deck was stacked or raised donations. Uh, you know, it is curious how every candidate in the reference you made, every candidate comes out with a poll the same day that says each one's ahead and they ask to raise money off of it an email. That does sound a little bit fishy, doesn't it? <laughs> well, certainly confusing. Yeah. 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 Um, I tried for the most part to look for polls that were supposedly unbiased, that didn't right. come, you know, from a particular campaign. Because I think you're right. I think that's what certain campaigns were doing was they were, you know, because you ask the questions a certain way, uh, you can kind of, if not control, you can influence the kind of answer you get to a particular question. So I did try to temper the candidates' polls 
with the ones that were uh, coming from agencies that didn't have a horse in the race, which was, I thought, as best I could do. Any other suggestions going forward for me? You know, I love uh, RCP um, because on their Real Clear Politics, they do a polling average. And so they take all the polls that have been released in full and average them together and show trend lines. And I think that's one of the most valuable things if you're going to follow polls you can get from the trend, right? Um, If one poll has a candidate up seven points and the other one has them up two points and another one has them up five points, the important thing to take away is there were three polls that had one candidate over the other. (laughs) Big picture. Literally a plot line that follows those trends. um, And I think that can be really helpful. Um, but to a large degree, I think at this point, one of the most valuable things you can get from a poll is not that kind of horse race question necessarily, um, but it is taking other sets of data, maybe from a focus group or a modeling project, and then matching it to um, parts of your audience, right? Like, uh, you know, who cares more about um, inflation uh, at the grocery store versus who cares more um, about inflation at the gas pump, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but those kind of questions, I think, are, are, are much more what it's useful for at this point. And there are a lot of people who are doing innovative stuff there, right, who are um, moving into um, not just online polling, but the way they do the online polling, um, which is way too technical and over my head, but I've said in a couple of briefings that there's some really innovative stuff going on there um, to try to ensure accuracy and sample. I'm talking to Isaac Wright from uh, the Rural Voter Institute. Tried to get him to share his algorithm, but he said if he told us, he'd have to kill us. Uh, We're going to take a break and be back with more from Isaac after this. Podcasts of Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Just search WCPT 820. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. And I'm joined by Isaac Wright. He's a partner at the Rural Voter Institute. And there are certain concerns that rural voters might have that urban voters might not. But one concern of the Democratic Party is getting its message out. Joe Biden is going to officially drop his budget tonight. He gave a big speech about it today. The White House issued a press release that sort of was like the greatest hits. And as I said at the top of the show, a lot of it is what he's already accomplished and he wants to keep on working on some of the issues he wants to tackle going forward, a a billionaire's tax, some other issues It's great stuff. He has accomplished so much, Isaac. And yet I see reporters, you know, on uh, either on the Internet or on network news shows going out and um, interviewing people who say, well, you know, I'm going to vote Republican because they're so good with the economy. And I'm thinking to myself, "Okay, this is clearly a voter we haven't reached. So how do we take the message of everything that that has amazingly been accomplished to make people's lives better in the last two years and make people fully understand and embrace it. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and tonight is a time when 
we all need to rally to help get the message out, right? I'm really excited to hear um, what the president says to the nation about the budget. You know, I'm, I'm excited to hear more about the, the billionaire minimum income tax, right? This idea um, that billionaires are going to pay, you know, those that are the very wealthiest Americans, they pay a tax rate of at least 20% on their full income, uh, including the unrealized uh, appreciation that is often used to create opaque, opaque taxes to hide wealth. Um, that leaves the rest of us paying a higher tax rate or a greater economic uh, burden to keep the country going and growing. Um, you know, the Biden agenda, it's lowered costs to created nearly 12 million jobs. Um, it's done so without any tax hikes for working families. You know, whereas you look at the MAGA agenda, you know, it's the same playbook, cut Social Security and Medicare, um, 30% sales tax, tax cuts for big corporations instead of regular American families. Um, that's a pretty stark contrast, and I think uh, we're going to hear more about that. And I'm I'm looking forward to it. And I think we all need to try to help get that message out there. How do how do we do it? How do I do it? What advice do you have for me, Isaac? Well, Joan, I think you're already the uh, leader of the fight, right? You're on the radio every day preaching the truth. We need more Joan Estezitos in the world, and the country would be a better place. Um, the rest of us, uh, average Joes like me, can go to Facebook, can go to Twitter, uh, can go to our social media um, and begin these conversations. Uh, and how we have those conversations matters, right? Um, the, uh, wow, look look what Biden did versus look what Trump was doing. See, I told you so. It's not really the attitude, right? Um, we need to be positive and we need to bring people in. Um, and are we going to ever convince every, say, rural and small town voter to uh, vote blue? No. But if we get five out of 100 to, we can flip almost every major battleground state. Um, we're talking about that near of a margin. So uh, that's what we need uh, to do is to start having conversations. And there are going to be some great points tonight. You know, um, one of the things um, I was saying, you know, I think I saw a, a study recently about, you know, over 90 percent of Americans um, believe in taking action to restore the American manufacturing industry. Right. That's one of the things that um, President Biden has taken major leadership on, like with the CHIPS Act, for example, not just American manufacturing, but bringing American jobs back into the country in the manufacturing sector of the same high tech products that had been slowing down supply chains and hurting our economy and driving inflation. Right. Um, that's a really comprehensive view, but it's reinvesting um, in, in producing things in this country in, in a key sector of our economy. How do you break through the the mindset during the Trump administration? They rolled back a lot of the safety measures for the trains that Obama had put in place. We have this monstrous derailment in Ohio that, from my understanding, limited as it may be, would not have happened had those same safety rules been in place. And yet you have Donald Trump going to that area talking about what a bad president Biden is and and how this, you know, derailment is somehow his fault. And yet you and I know that if it's anybody's fault, it's his fault. So is in a situation like that, 
Is it the media's fault for not like, you know, in in those small towns in Ohio saying, well, you know, President, former President Trump showed up today and said this. But you know what? If he hadn't done X, we wouldn't have Y. Is it who's you know, it just it drives me crazy to to see this disinformation and misinformation seemingly have as much impact as the actual truth. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this spirit of deregulation at all costs in every sector uh, by a, a, a very um, dangerous segment of the Republican uh, Party is is costing lives um, and it's cost our economy. And we have to take a look at that. Right. There is a reason why we want to have safety standards and we ought to be holding up the tragedy in Ohio not to glorify it, but to say this is a consequence of the actions of government, right? Like this is the outcome of deregulation of safety rules. And this is why we need to have regulations. This is why we need to have certain safety standards. So what do you see right now when you look at the uh, 2024 presidential election? Well, I think we're going to see a taste of it tonight. That's what I'm hoping is we're going to see, uh, you know, I think we saw in the State of the Union address sort of an idea of where the president's going to be coming from. Um, I think he was on fire that night, don't you think? Right. Oh, absolutely. Um, He did what he needed to do. Absolutely. You know, and what I think hopefully we're going to hear, you know, I mean, this is a president that under his leadership, we've added 12 million jobs in the country, more jobs in two years than any president in uh, an entire four-year term in American history, right? That's a story that needs to be told, right? People need that information. The unemployment rate has fallen to 3.4%, the lowest level in more than 50 years. Um, the past two years were the best two years for new small business applications on record. Wages are rising. Inflation is slowing. Manufacturing is booming. And the economy is growing again. You know, we need to talk about those stories. Um, we don't want to be insensitive to the fact that inflation has caused tremendous economic damage to a lot of families, a lot of communities, a lot of lives. But we need to be confident when we do talk about the where we have turned a corner and what has been accomplished. Um, you know, he's delivered on the commitment to fiscal responsibility, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, the last administration talking about Trump passed a $2 trillion unpaid tax cut skewed to the wealthiest Americans, to big corporations, dramatically increased the deficit. On the other hand, President Biden reduced the deficit by more than $1.7 trillion during just his first two years in office, the largest reduction of the deficit in U.S. history. And the reforms that he signed into law to take on big pharma, lower prescription drug costs, and make the wealthy and big corporations pay their fair share, those are reducing the deficit by hundreds of billions of dollars more over the long term. I mean, the budget details um, of fiscally responsible that I think he's going to talk about tonight are a, what I'm expecting here is a, a fiscally responsible blueprint to build on that progress and to deliver on the agenda that he laid out in that fired up State of the Union address um, and how to finish that job. Um, and I'm, I'm very excited to hear what he has to say about it. I'm hoping he brings out a whiteboard, you know, like Katie Porter always does, brings out a whiteboard and saying, "Okay, here's where we were before. This was the tax cut like this. Let's take this person for an example. They were paying this in taxes and then suddenly they were paying this in taxes and I want them to pay this in taxes. 
I love those whiteboards because I think sometimes people get lost, especially like you were just talking, tossing out a, a bunch of numbers. And for some people, you know, you get to the second or third number and their eyes glaze over and their ears turn off. I want to see Joe. I want to see dark Brandon out there with a whiteboard tonight. There you go. There you go. Yeah. And you know something else I'd like to see? I would like to see Republicans put up or shut up. Congressional Republicans, if they're going to stand there and take pop shots at the budget, then they should offer a detailed budget of their own, right? Backed up by full, transparent accounting of their of the numbers they want to propose, right? Um, if they want to criticize, then let them chip into the effort and put some some elbow grease in to finding solutions. Let's see them put together a detailed budget of exactly what it is. It's fully transparent on where the money comes from, how it's accounted for, right? Are they still going to go through with cutting Medicare, Medicaid, with the Republican desire to cut Social Security? Um, are they going to repeal the Affordable Care Act and take away people's health insurance? Are they going to gut programs for working families, for seniors, for veterans? All the things that they threaten to do um, to pay for tax cuts for the wealthy, put it on paper. Put that out there as the alternative. Let's let people pick and decide. Don't just stand there and go on right-wing media and and crow about it, right? Put up or shut up. Let Republicans come to the table with their own detailed budget with full accounting transparency and give the American people a choice if they really want to be part of the dialogue in a serious way. Well, at the State of the Union, he got them to stand up for seniors, though I... uh I think that may have been more of a gesture than a real meaningful commitment. But you know what? It wouldn't it after seeing him at the State of the Union, what you just suggested, it wouldn't surprise me if that's exactly what he did. I mean, this is a guy who knows negotiation. He's been in the Senate uh, since probably before you and I were born. And, you know, this is a guy who knows how to talk the talk of the people in the Senate. And, you know, he uh, did a great job with the Republicans at the State of the Union. You know, maybe he's he'll take your advice, Isaac, and and invite them to, you You know, like my budget. OK, let's see yours and let's see where yeah. the money's coming from and, and full transparency. And then we'll talk. I wouldn't surprise yeah. me if he would do something like that. Yeah. Well, and I think I think the talking heads of the Democratic Party need to do that. You know, I've, I've been known to uh, go on uh, conservative media before. And make the case um, for progressives and, and the party and the Democratic Party. And I think we need to be more aggressive at doing that. And every time a Republican talking head um, or conservative host starts to criticize the budget, you know, just answer with where's the Republican alternative? Where's your Republican alternative? You know, if you have an idea, put it on paper. Um, but this idea of just standing around saying we should let the country default because we don't like your budget and we're not willing to do the work of coming up with our own, that's not going to fly, right? Yeah. Um, put up or shut up. And I think we should start taking that. You know, Yes, I think that is a, a, a very potentially strong negotiating tactic for the president when he's uh, negotiating with McConnell. Um, or if it's, um, you know, I'm not sure now in the House if you need to negotiate with Marjorie Taylor Greene or Kevin McCarthy. Um, you can't tell he's running that caucus anymore. Um, really? But that's separate from, you know, what we as Democrats, what we as progressives need to engage in the dialogue. Right. Um, we need to stop taking the bait for, you know, well, we're, we're going to defend your criticisms when you're not willing to put any skin in the game and actually offer solutions. 
Um, Isaac, uh, we have to we have to wrap up. Uh, I love talking to you. I always wish we had more time. Isaac Wright is a partner at the Rural Voter Institute. Thank for thank you for being here, Isaac. Thank you so much. It was great to be with you, Joan. We're going to take a break. We're going to be back with our health and wellness panel right after this.